Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week we'll be kicking off season 13 as we join the Doctor, Sarah Jane and Harry as they return to Earth to face the terror of the Zygons. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. But as always, I shall lead off with the story summary. Thank you. You're welcome. Part 1. On an oil rig off the Scottish coast, radio operator Monroe is making preparations for the following day's supply run, when a strange interference distorts the broadcast. Suddenly the lights go out as the rig starts to crumble into the sea, exploding as it does so. The following day, the Doctor, now wearing a tartan scarf and Tam O'Shanter hat, leads Sarah Jane and Harry across the moors, eventually coming across the main road. They flag down a passing jeep and ask for a lift. Elsewhere, at a nearby village, the brigadier, now wearing a kilt, is meeting with a man named Huckle, who represents the company the oil rig belonged to. He says that a number of oil rigs have been destroyed in the last few months, costing his company millions. The brigadier says that he has been dispatched by the government to investigate due to the loss of life of the rig workers. Huckle's frustration isn't helped by the fact that the sound of bagpipes is filling the air, but the brigadier says that there's nothing that they can do, as they are being played by the owner of the inn he requisitioned as a field HQ. Benton arrives and says that there is still no sign of the doctor, but a short while later they see him and the others arrive. The brigadier notices the driver, a severe-looking old man who looking at them disapprovingly, and asks Huckle if he knows him. Huckle says that he is the Duke of Forgill, the owner of the surrounding land which borders the shore base for the drilling company. The doctor enters and both he and Sarah Jane are distracted by the brigadier's clothing. Forgill also enters and confronts Huckle about the continued trespassing and poaching done on his land by Huckle's men. Huckle says that all his men have been warned and any caught doing so will be fired, but Forgill warns that he has ordered his warden to shoot on sight. Huckle leaves and Forgill does so as well after the brigadier says he can't give any information about Unit's presence. After briefly explaining to Sarah Jane that his kilt is due to his Scottish heritage, the brigadier fills the doctor in on why he messaged him. The doctor is initially not impressed when he thinks he is investigating on behalf of the old company's interests, but the brigadier says that the greater concern is to stop any more people dying. The doctor agrees and they make their way to the shore base. At the shore base, Huckle gives Harry the medical report, but he says he wants to take another look at it due to the number of crash injuries detailed. Sarah Jane goes with him, saying that she will ask around the village to see if anyone noticed any strange activity. After they leave, the brigadier and Huckle talk about the near impossibility of the rigs collapsing, and the doctor asks about the strange radio interference documented before each rig was destroyed. In the village, Sarah Jane meets with the owner of the inn, Mr. MacRonald, and talks to him about Forgill. MacRonald says that Forgill is the hereditary clan chief of the families in the area. He also says that he has been acting very differently since the old company started their drilling, but attributes it to the fact that many of his staff and castle servants left his company to go work for the oil rig. Sarah Jane then says that many of the locals mentioned that MacRonald has second sight, due to him being the seventh son of a seventh son, and that he had a vision of the doom of the oil rig. He says that the nearby moor, which joins the shore base, is feared by the locals, and that any that go near it at night have been victims to strange disappearances, never to be seen again. He tells of one man who saw his brother disappear, and when the others found him, he was nearly insane and never spoke another word. He warns her away from the moor, but Sarah Jane says that whatever spirit haunts the moor can't destroy oil rigs and then leaves. Unbeknownst to her, their conversation is being observed via viewscreen by a mysterious figure. Out by the shoreline, Monroe, having washed ashore in a life ring, staggers up to the nearby road. Harry, driving to the medical facility near the shore base, spots him and rushes to help him. Also making his way across the dunes is Forgill's warden, who watches them from afar. Harry tends to Monroe, who tells him that he saw what attacked the rig. However, before he can say anything more, he is shot and killed by the warden. 
Hard looks around to see where the shot came from, but he is also shot in the head and falls to the ground. Elsewhere, several cephalopodic hands work on a machine resembling a piece of coral, whilst their owners give instructions in sinister, sibilant voices. The machine sends a signal out, which is detected by a large-scale creature lying on the seabed. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane returns to the inn, where she finds the doctor tinkering with a piece of equipment, whilst listening to MacRonald play the bagpipes. He tells her that the tune is a lament for the dead, before explaining that the device he has is used for checking radio jamming frequencies. Sarah Jane answers the phone and in shock tells the doctor about Harry being shot. They rush to the medical facility to find him unconscious with his head bandage. The brigadier joins them and says that another rig has been destroyed and the doctor goes to investigate with him while Sarah Jane stays behind to keep an eye on Harry. The brigadier shows the doctor some of the recovered wreckage, which has several deep indents in it, and the doctor tells Benton to get some plaster from the medical facility. The doctor then shows the brigadier, Benton and Huckle that the indents uh, resemble teeth from a large creature. This conversation is also observed by the mysterious figure who says the doctor is a threat and needs to be destroyed. In the medical facility, Harry comes to and struggles to tell Sarah Jane and the nurse what Monroe told him. Sarah Jane goes to call the doctor and after she leaves, Harry continues to try and reveal what he was told. He suddenly recoils in horror from the nurse as the strange sound fills the air. In the corridor, Sarah Jane tells the doctor about Harry and he says that he will be right over but instructs her to not to tell anyone about Harry's recovery. Sarah Jane starts to ask why, but she is suddenly attacked by a humanoid, cephalopodic-like creature. Part 2. The doctor hears Sarah Jane screams over the phone and rushes out of the inn and the brigadier orders Benton to go with him. They arrive at the medical facility to find no sign of Sarah Jane or Harry, with the nurse saying that she found the window to his room open when she came back from trying to find Sarah Jane. The doctor tells Benton to bring in some men to help search the area and the nurse takes the doctor to where the phone is. The nurse leaves him while she goes to check on the dispensary, but after she leaves, he goes to investigate the decompression room, which is used to help deep-sea divers. Inside, he finds Sarah Jane huddled in a corner, and she tells him about the creature that attacked her. As they talk, she sees it outside as it closes the door to the chamber, and then starts to lower the pressure in the room. Sarah Jane starts to panic due to the increasingly low oxygen, and the doctor hypnotizes her into a trance that limits her breathing, and a few moments later, he places himself into the trance as well. Meanwhile, a dazed Harry is brought into a strange control room that seems to resemble the coral-like equipment of the creatures. He is then addressed by the leader of the creatures, who identifies himself as Broton, and names his species as Zygons. He reveals that their spacecraft landed on Earth centuries before, but they cannot leave as their home planet was destroyed. He says that they now intend to take over the Earth, and shows Harry a view screen where he sees a large sea creature that they have been using to destroy the rigs. Broton calls it a scarison, and says they need its milk as a food source. Harry voices that without it they will die, but Broton reveals that they have cybernetically augmented the Scarrison, making it impervious to a nuclear strike. Back at the inn, the Brigadier is getting a field report when suddenly the room fills with gas. He tries to break down the door but succumbs to the effects of the gas along with his men and collapses to the floor. Benton and his men enter the decompression chamber and free the Doctor and Sarah Jane, with the Doctor bringing Sarah Jane out of the trance. They make their way back to the inn where they find Huckle trying to rouse the unconscious Brigadier. Benton scouts the area and reports that everyone else in the village seems to have been similarly affected. The doctor tells him that someone has deliberately gassed the village to be able to move freely and he tells Benton to secure the area. Meanwhile, on the Zygon ship, the doctor's return is related to Broton, who berates his underling for not ensuring that he was dead before he left. He turns on the view screen and they watch Huckle show the doctor a small device that was discovered amongst the wreckage of the rig. Broton recognises it as one of their signalling devices and orders Harry to be taken and prepared for use. He then watches as the doctor explains to Huckle what the signal device does. Harry is brought to a chamber filled with alcoves and in two of them he spots the nurse from the medical facility and another figure who is Forgel's warden. 
One of the Zygons explains that they can copy the genetic imprint of the humans and allow the Zygons to turn into a perfect copy of them. He shows Harry an example of this by turning into the Warden. Back at the inn, the Doctor theorizes that the signal device must emit a primitive mating call, which is what draws the Scarrison to the rigs to destroy them. Huckle tells him that when he arrived at the inn, he heard a strange howling in the distance, but didn't go and look. He then leaves as the unit personnel start to regain consciousness. The Brigadier comes to, but doesn't seem to recall passing out, and gets back to his reports. Out on the moors, Benton and one of his men come across the mangled remains of another unit soldier. Benton sends for the Doctor and the Brigadier, who leaves Sarah Jade behind in case Harry shows up. While they are gone, Sarah Jane starts to work on an article about the current situation, but she's interrupted by the arrival of Harry, who acts strangely. He picks up the signal device and says that the doctor told him to retrieve it. Suspicious, Sarah Jane tries to stop him from leaving, but he pushes her to the ground and flees. Sarah Jane runs after him and enlists the aid of a squad of unit troops. They follow him to a farmhouse and Sarah Jane tells him to split up to find him. She hears noise coming from the barn and goes to investigate. Harry observes her from the hayloft and watches as she climbs up to investigate. He emerges and takes a nearby pitchfork and repeatedly tries to stab her. He then rushes at her, but his momentum carries him over the edge of the hayloft and he falls onto the spikes of an old piece of farming equipment, turning back into a Zygon as he dies. On the Zygon ship, the connection to the alcove containing Harry is severed and Broton realises that the imposter has died. He orders that the body be remotely liquidated so that it can't be used for research against them. Sergeant brings the unit troops to look at the body, but it is gone by the time they get back. She returns to the end with the signal device, giving it to the doctor. She then voices her concern that someone is watching them as all their movements seem to be predicted. The doctor agrees and the brigadier seems shocked at the idea of a spy in their midst. However, the doctor quietly tells him that it is more likely that they are being bugged and the brigadier orders Benton to search the area for listening devices. Sarah Jane sees the signal device move and the doctor realises that the scarrison is on its way to them. The brigadier orders his men to prepare their defences but the doctor says that they would be no match for the scarrison. He says he would take the signal device and try to draw the creature off whilst the Brigadier tries to locate the source of the signal. With Sarah Jane telling him to be careful, the Doctor takes a jeep and drives out into the moors. The jeep stalls and the Doctor tries to get it working again, but is forced to abandon it when he hears the Scarrison's roars. He runs across the moor with the Scarrison pursuing him. He then hears the signal device beeping, and when he touches it, it adheres itself to his hand. At the inn, the Brigadier has managed to locate the source of the signal and reveals that it is coming from Loch Ness. Out on the moor, the Scarrison, a huge lumbering plesiosaur-like creature, catches up to the Doctor and prepares to attack. Part 3 As the Scarrison prepares to strike, Harry enters the control room of the Zygon ship after having escaped the transformation room and lunges to the control panel, managing to hit several different switches before he is apprehended. Out on the moor, the Doctor rolls out of the way as the Scarrison slams its huge clawed flipper into the ground. He looks around distractedly whilst the Doctor, who is remaining still, watches on. The view screen on the ship has been damaged due to Harry's interference. Broton, thinking the Doctor is dead due to the signal no longer working, recalls the Scarrison. The Doctor watches it leave and then stares at his hand, noticing that the signal device came off before the creature struck. He finds it undamaged amidst the header and makes his way across the moor. A short while later, he is met by the Brigadier and Sarah Jane who came looking for him. The Doctor reveals the nature of the Scarrison and they reveal the origin of the signal. The Doctor says they need to go to speak to Forgal. At the inn, Benton sweeps the main room for bugs, despite McRonald's misgivings. Benton starts to look at a stag head mounted on the wall, but stops when McRonald objects, saying that it was a gift from Forgill. Unbeknownst to them, the eye socket of the stag houses one of the bugs, and Broton orders it to be removed immediately. At Forgill Castle, the Doctor and Yoris let themselves in when no one answers, and they make their way to the Forgill's office, where he arrives a few moments later. 
They tell him about the discovery of the signal coming from Loch Ness, but he is skeptical of their claims. The Brigadier asks for permission to use depth charges in the lock, but Forgill refuses to believe them despite all the evidence they give him. When the Doctor voices his suspicions that aliens are behind the attacks, he says that they are all mad. The Doctor says that the aliens have become more aggressive due to the fact that the oil companies have set up base near their territory. The Brigadier says that there must be some other reason that they have attacked the rigs, and the Doctor agrees but can't think as to what it is. Meanwhile, at the end, McRonald is cleaning when he gets a strange feeling about the stag head and starts to unscrew it from the wall. Before he finishes it, the nurse from the medical facility arrives, lulling McRonald into a false sense of security before reverting to her Zygon form and killing him. Benton and the Fuhrers hear his screams and rush back to the inn to discover his body. Benton orders his men to search the area and they spot the Zygon in the woods. They manage to wound the alien and Benton gives orders for, for the Brigadier to be informed whilst they try to capture the injured creature. However, it changes back to resembling the nurse and knocks out a unit soldier guarding a group of jeeps when he tries to inspect her wound. The Brigadier gets the call at the castle and he and the Doctor leave, telling Sarah Jane to stay behind to go through Forgill's library to see if there are any leads in the history books for the area. They arrive back at the inn and the Doctor notices one of the eyes missing from the staghead. The Doctor says that Forgill is involved somehow or has possibly been replaced as a Zygon, leading the Brigadier to realise that Sarah Jane is in danger. Back at the castle, Sarah Jane and Forgill continue to debate the existence of the Scarrison. Forgill summons the Warden to bring in a set of steps so Sarah Jane can access the older books on the upper shelves and then leaves her to do her research. Once she is alone, Sarah Jane starts to take down several books from the shelves. Suddenly, a section of the bookcase opens, revealing a secret tunnel. Taking a nearby flashlight, she makes her way down the tunnel. She comes across an automatic door that actually leads into the Zygon ship, and she comes across the transformation room, where she finds the bodies of the nurse, the warden, and Forgill. She then sees Harry in another room, but she is worried that he might be another doppelganger. Her fears are soon put to rest, though, when he calls her old girl and she lets him out. However, the reunion is cut short when they hear someone approaching, and then they watch as the warden doppelganger helps to bring the wounded nurse doppelganger into the ship. Once the coast is clear, they make their way back to the secret tunnel. Meanwhile, the doctor and brigadier arrive at the castle and find blood from the wounded Zygon on the floor of the library. They take cover when they see the bookcase open, but are relieved to see that it is Sarah Jane and Harry. They tell them what they found in the tunnel, and the doctor goes to investigate, but before the others can follow him, they hear his screams. Suddenly, Broton and another Zygon appear, and say that they will kill the doctor if they interfere with their plans to become the rulers of the planet. He then seals off the tunnel, and the brigadier takes Sarah Jane and Harry to the Loch Ness, where Benton and the others have been preparing the death charges. After a few rounds of shelling, they watch as the Zygon ship emerges from the Loch and flies away over the countryside. Part 4. Broton relays orders to emit a jamming signal so the ship cannot be tracked by the radar. Back on the ground, the Brigadier sends orders for anti-air defences to be prepared, but not to fire until ordered to do so. Sarah Jane says that they should go back to the castle to see if there's anything there that they can tell them about the Zygons are planning, and the Brigadier drives her and Harry back. However, their search doesn't turn up much bar some correspondence from the various organisations that the real Forgill is in charge of, and so they make their way back to the inn. At the inn, Benton informs the Brigadier that no radar station in the country is working due to the jamming signal. The Brigadier orders Benton to continue overseeing their return to London, and he informs the newly returned Sarah Jane and Harry of the loss of the ship, as well as the tracking of something travelling by the coast at high speed. Meanwhile, the Zygon ship lands in an isolated area, and Broton orders it to be run on half power in order to avoid detection. He is then told that the Scarrison is approaching its target, and aims to come inland via a river estuary. Broton then goes to see the Doctor, transforming into Forgill in an effort to show him their technological superiority. 
The Doctor asks him why he wants to conquer the Earth, seeing as how there are so few Zygons. Rotan says that there are other refugee fleets that fled when their planet was destroyed, but once Earth is conquered and prepared for them, they would be able to rejoin them. He says that they will enslave humanity to help with the preparation of the planet. The Doctor warns him not to underestimate humanity's strength and determination, but Broton confidently ignores his warnings. At Unit HQ in London, Benton does his best to comfort Sarah Jane by reassuring her that the Doctor will be fine. The Brigadier arrives and says that the Navy are assembling a fleet to try and stop the Scarrison from reaching the River Estuary. A phone call then comes in for the Brigadier from the Prime Minister, who tells him that any action must be discreet so as not to create a panic. Meanwhile, on the Zygon ship, the Doctor tinkers with some of the cabling from the overhead speaker system and exposes the wiring. He then acts as a conduit, struggling against the pain as the electricity floods his body, but he successfully manages to affect the ship's systems so that the jamming signal stops working. The end of the jamming causes the Zygon ship's frequency to be broadcast and is picked up at Unit HQ, where Benton recognises it. He triangulates its source to an abandoned quarry outside Brentford, on the outskirts of London. Sarah Jane says that it must be the Doctor and they all make their way to the quarry. Back on the ship, Broton and another Zygon get into the Doctor's cell but find him collapsed on the floor. The other Zygon checks him and says that he is dead and Broton says it is time for them to continue with their plan. However, once they leave, the Doctor gets up, happy to see that he survived. He then makes his way through the ship coming across the transformation room where he releases the real Forgill and the others. He explains to them what happened and then sets off the ship's fire alarm in order to get the Zygons out of the control room. They go back into the alcoves to let the Zygons go past and once the coast is clear, they make their way to the control room, sealing themselves inside. The Doctor then sets the ship's self-destruct and leads the others to the exit as they only have a minute to get out. They see the group from Unit arrive and the Doctor tells them to take cover, managing to join them before the ship blows up. Harry says that the Zygon threat has ended, but the Doctor says that Broton is still out there and he intends to use the Scarrison to attack some important target. The Brigadier remembers that the Prime Minister is attending a large event at Stanbridge House, which is on the River Thames. Forgill says that the event is an international energy conference which will be attended by several world leaders. Sarah Jane then remembers that Forgill is the president of the Scottish Energy Commission as it was one of the correspondences on his desk at the castle and therefore Broton would have full access to the building. At Stanbridge House, Broton places the signal beacon for the Scarrison in the upper levels before leaving. The Doctor and the others arrive later to try and find him with Benton informing them that the Scarrison is currently four minutes away from the building. The Doctor tells the group to split up and then find Broton, and he goes with Sarah Jane up to the loft of the building. Broton ambushes them, and the Doctor tells Sarah Jane to go get the Brigadier whilst he engages Broton. The Doctor is no match for the Zygon leader, but before he can kill the Doctor, the Brigadier arrives and kills him. Sarah Jane and Harry attend to the Doctor, who tells the Brigadier to evacuate the building, as they may not find the signal beacon before the Scarrison arrives. The Doctor then hears the signal device from close by, and discovers that Broton pushes it into his pocket. He says that they will need to let the Scarrison destroy it and rushes to the roof. The Doctor throws the signal device at it and it chews it to pieces before resubmerging and returning to Loch Ness. Later that day, the Doctor, Sarah Jane, Harry, the Brigadier and Forgill make their way to the TARDIS with the Brigadier explaining to Forgill that the whole event with the Scarrison has been dealt with and an official cover story has been given to explain what happened. They arrive to the TARDIS and the Doctor offers to give them all a trip back to London. Sarah Jane is the only one to join him after getting an agreement out of him that they will just be going back to London. Forgill watches in amazement as the TARDIS disappears and then chides the Brigadier, saying that as a Scot he should have taken their train tickets and gotten a refund for them. End of the story. Thank you for that, Paddington. Much appreciated as 
always. You're very welcome. So what trivia from Terror of the Zycons is at the trivia spot this week? Cool, let's jump in. So for the air date, we're looking at the 30th of August to the 20th of September 1975. The writer is Robert Banks Stewart. This is a new writer. This is the first of two stories for Robert. We'll see his work again in The Seeds of Doom. This is actually the first television story since The Demons to be written by someone who'd never written for the series before. Everyone else had been a sort of returning writer. Robert passed away in 2016. The director of this story is Douglas Canfield. This is story 10 of 11 that Dougie has contributed to. Mm. We previously saw his work, some in conjunction with other people and some on his own, in An Unearthly Child, Planet of Giants, The Crusade, The Chase, The Time Meddler, The Daleks Master Plan, The Web of Fear, The Invasion, and Inferno. We'll see his work again for the last time in The Seeds of Doom. Now, this is actually, effectively, the earliest Doctor Who story directed completely by Dougie that survives in its entirety. Mm. Because Planet of Giants, he only did the final episode. Mm -hmm. Inferno, he didn't do most of the studio scenes because he was ill and Barry did most of it. Yeah. And everything else is missing. Or at least... A lot of it is missing. Hmm. And obviously, Unearthly Child, he didn't actually direct that. He just did it a little bit with Wars. So yeah. um, this is actually Dougie's first complete story <laughs> of his own that we have seen. It'll be interesting to see um, Seeds of Doom because, like, I think the himself, uh, like his direction and Robert Stewart Banks' writing really paired mm. well together, I think. Yeah. So the story had the working title of Loch Ness. The Secret of the Lock, Secret of Loch Ness, The Loch Ness Monster, and just the Zygons. It was actually originally a six-parter. And Bob Holmes condensed it down to four parts, and apparently no significant plot threads were lost along the way. I think the only way you could maybe really stretch it out was by having one of the Zygons impersonate the Doctor for like an episode or something. Maybe, but this is kind of goes back to something that I've spoken about before where we've had six partners in the past that have just dragged. Yeah. And I think it's like, even if something is originally envisioned as a six partner, it doesn't always need to be. Or looking at you, Space Pirates. Yeah, yeah. A number of other ones. I, I, like, do, do you know how much that dragged? I keep thinking it's like a nine part episode <laughs> or nine part story. That's how much that fucking thing dragged. So we spoke... I was going to say last week, but we didn't speak last week. We spoke several weeks ago. My apologies for the massive gap in recording. Um, We spoke in our previous episode that this was originally meant to be the end of season 12. Mm. But it was pushed back to the start of season 13. Apparently, this is actually to allow for the broadcast schedule to change. So usually it would start in January. And now they're removing it to start in September. So... End of August. Arsenal. So you have this on DVD, don't you? Yeah. I do. All right. Does it have that weird intro section of the Doctor in a cinema? No, it doesn't. So that was um, that was something that I think aired the preceding before. It us. was the preceding week. Yeah, to run into because at the end of the last season, we have the Brigadier sending the message. Yeah. To the Doctor via the the thingy, and so that sequence which it, it's on the dvd and like special features but it's not part of the story on the dvd yeah so um that was meant to sort of remind people before the following week of what had happened so the sequence is the doctor is sitting in a 
uh, a cinema or mm. uh, no it's the Disney theater yeah uh, no I presume that's somewhere in London I don't know if it's still a thing I've, I'm not sure but someone off camera very Monty Python-esque just hands him a note just like a hand mm. comes out and it says it's from the brigadier he needs my help and so then he goes back to the up onto the street and he goes to the TARDIS he goes uh, oh, I'm going to say goodbye to you now but I'll see you next week so yeah, yeah it's obviously just yeah, that was a sort of an ad promo type yeah. thing um, not actually part of the story yeah this is the first unit story we have had since Robot. So we had first story of last season and now mm-hmm. first story of this season. Mm-hmm. Although we are going to have two more u- unit stories a little bit later. Mm-hmm. This is the last we will see of the Brigadier until 1983. I, I, this is like kind of a bittersweet because to me, this is the last of the, of the actual unit stories. It is. And, I'll get into it in a little bit. I have a point a few bullets down about how Nicholas Courtney felt about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in many ways, this is the end of Eunice. In many ways, Eunice kind of ended in Robot. Let's be honest. Do you it, know, like did, They had yeah. one story last season. Mm-hmm. But this is really sort of the end of it. Um, we did also get another departure. So Harry mm-hmm. um, is leaving as well. Though we will see him in android invasion for a bit um that's not considered a companion appearance that's no. a sort of guest appearance and this is actually the only season opener i think ever definitely in the classic series i don't think it's happened in the new series either that was a season opener where a companion left mm, let's see if i'm gonna say yeah i guess yeah. Because we were two stories into season two when Susan left. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Vicky didn't leave us mobile until season three. And yeah, so yeah, I think this is the first season opener where someone's out. Yeah, it's the only season opener uh, when someone is out. Yeah. This is also the only on screen appearance of the Zygons. They may be referred to and there may be flashbacks, but for the classic series, this is their only on screen appearance. Obviously, in the new series, they came back. Mm. Um, but in classic this is it one and done so in part four the brigadier speaks on the phone to the prime minister and you actually mentioned this to me because you're like in the arc in space Mm -hmm. Harry kind of makes a comment about oh can you imagine a female leader or whatever whereas here we can see that actually the prime minister is a woman Seven months before the broadcast, in February of 1975, Margaret Thatcher had become the leader of the Conservative Party. Yeah. So it makes sense in the story. But obviously she wouldn't have been in place in no. arc when Harry yeah. made his comment originally. Well, to be fair as well, like I don't think... like She didn't become PM for another good few years. I think she just became the party leader at this stage. Yeah, she became the party leader, but it was, it was a... Obviously, a possibility. Oh, yeah, of course. Know, yeah. <laughs> a, a greater possibility at that point. Yeah. The decompression chamber sequence. Hmm. Originally, the way it was written, it was going to require practical effects that actually ended up being too expensive. So basically, Tom and Liz were sort of left their own devices, you know, do whatever you think works for the scene. Hmm. And they were able to cope it by themselves. Which can't go. Cool. Yeah. Originally, there was meant to be a far greater emphasis on the Scarrison and the lock, but 
Bob Holmes felt that the Zygons were more interesting, particularly because you actually interact with them. Yeah. Whereas this garrison is just kind of there. Mm. Um, so that's why I imagine a lot of that extra two episodes was probably a lot of Scarrison based yeah. stuff. I mean, to be fair, like you, you should kind of treat like in a story like this, it's like I think the Scarrison should be treated like you know the Kraken almost, like you know it's the big thing at the end. Mm. So John Woodnot is who plays the Duke of Forkel, and Ian Matter thought he was so funny mm. that apparently when they were filming, Ian was often giggling when he should have been acting scared. <laughs> Apparently, your man was just a hoot and a half. Hmm. Um, John Woodwin did actually spend a lot of time getting the Laird's accent right. He pointed that as a Laird, he probably would have been educated at Eton, and so he probably sounded a bit more English. Mm-hmm. But Dougie wants him to be very Scottish, and so the accent we get is a little bit in the middle. Yeah. He has some Scottish R's and some Scottish, like, you know, there's some Scottish roles in there. It's it's it, there's definitely the accent, but compared to like the warden or the gilly, as Horgel calls him, uh, mm. yeah, it's not as thick. Yeah. So I mentioned Nick Courtney and his thoughts on this story. Apparently, he was very unhappy making the story. He thought that you know this would be the last time playing the brigadier, and he thought the character kind of faded away, and he he was very sad about it. Um, he had suggested to Philip Hinchcliffe that maybe the Brigadier should be killed off. No. Because he wouldn't be, like, you know, he wouldn't be required in the show's new format. He wasn't going to be continuing, so just kill him off. Um, Philip Hinchcliffe turned down the idea, and this is where I'm going to make a comment that we'll, I'm sure we will come back to mm-hmm. many years from now when we get to a certain event. Philip felt that it would be inappropriate it would be an inappropriate fate for a character who had been so vital to the program. Mm-hmm. In a few years, we're going to get to a story yeah. that deals with the Brigadier. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to stick a pin in that <laughs> Yeah. until we get there. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Nicholas Corney also didn't have the best relationship with Tom Baker during the story. Apparently, Tom was a little bit up his own arse. Um, Nicholas has said that Tom was less congenial and hypersensitive to criticism. He thinks he was off in his own plane and the rest of them had to scramble to keep up with him. Apparently the tension turned ugly once when Tom was handed some uncomplimentary notes and lashed out. From what Nicholas Courtney said, he'd had the part for a year and he didn't take kindly to being treated like an incompetent neophyte. Which is not the Tom Baker we all want to imagine. No, and like, like, see, this is the thing. Like, it's you're getting, you're getting, like, I suppose, like a memoir from Nick Courtney. Like, and yeah. now, I did, I personally didn't think that the Brigadier faded in this story. Like, no, no, is he as prominent as he would have been in other stories? I don't know, but I don't, I still don't think he's off in the background, you know, making the tea. Um, but like, okay, so now this is just my own guessing of what's going on. It's like you have, I suppose, with the unit family, this is the last unit story. Maybe they're remembering, you know, the good old days of when it was, when Katie and John were around and Richard and Roger were around and maybe someone, you know, passing the notes, maybe you might want to do it a small bit like this. I suppose Tom 
coming in and like obviously creating a hot streak, you know, being popular. Mm. And then kind of going like, you know, maybe like, look, it's my turn at the, the steering wheel now. But again, yeah, this like, is just... like Phil Pinchip has said that this is the story where Tom really... This is the doctor. Like this is this is the story where he could he could look at Tom and go, "Yeah, he's got it. This is this is it." I mean, the other thing is, well, this like this story was filmed at the end of last season. Yeah. Do you know? And you know, tensions running high, people being tired. You know, in terms of Nick's character fading away, if you imagine, like, how much did Nick have to do in Robot? Then he's gone for. Four stories, mm-hmm. and then he's back, and then he's gone again. Yeah, I can kind of get where he's coming from, but it, it's a bit unfortunate mm-hmm. um, that that's the way Nick remembers that time, and that's the way he felt. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he kind of would have preferred his character be killed off is a bit, it's a bit sad. It is. But let's go on to our cast. So we're just going to discuss three members of the cast specifically because. The way we're going to do the characters is going to, I think, be a bit interesting and we'll take them as they come. But the three members of the cast we just wanted to call out are the Duke of Forgill, mm-hmm. Huckle, and Angus McRanald. So the Duke of Forgill is John Woodnut, like I mentioned. This is story 304 for John. Now, you seem surprised when I told you he'd been in the show before. Yeah. He was previously in Spearhead from Space. Do you remember? He was the head of the plastics factory. The... The, the, isn't it the good guy not the no the guy who was in league with the so not the guy who came back from traveling and was fired but the guy who fired him yeah but as like the, the factory owner not like creepy yeah, f- not, yeah no the factory owner yeah. not creepy silent fucker staring out windows oh, no, 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 yeah no. that's what it was, <laughs> that's what it was sort of, obviously yeah. yeah he was wearing like uh, like milk bottle milk bottle glasses so maybe mm. that's why I don't recognize him he was also in Frontier in Space Presumably, as a he was in full draconian. Yeah, yeah he was a draconian. Oh. He was the draconian emperor. Was he brought on as well? Yes, he was. Cool. Because like, yeah, because I was gonna say like, you know, like if that's not him, then the guy in the brought on costume is doing a really good job. <laughs> no, no, he's both. <laughs> he's both. Yeah. Um, we will see John once more in the Keeper of Tricken. Huckle is played by Tony Sibbald. This is his only Doctor Who appearance. His non-Who credits include Superman 2, Hackers, A View to a Kill, and Quartermass. Tony passed away in 2011. As Angus McRonald, we have Angus Lenny. Mm-hmm. As the second and final appearance for Angus, we previously saw him as Store in the Ice Warriors. As mentioned, this is the last regular appearance for Ian Martyr as Harry Sullivan. We will see him again, though, in one more story this season. As a guest character. Mm-hmm. And as Tom Baker once called him, a good egg. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. So, thank you very much for that lovely trivia. You're very welcome. Uh, tinged with sadness because of the amount of people mm-hmm. now leaving the show. But, you know, our love for them is ever long. And actually, when we get to discuss, well, he one of the characters we're going to be discussing is Benton. Uh, I actually saw a really good video that I'm going to mention in my thing. But uh, so, yeah, as always, it is the character discussion time. So we have the Doctor, we have Sarah Jane, Harry, 
uh, and the Brigadier and Benton as our companions. Mm-hmm. We have a small, a slightly smaller prominent character discussion in terms of uh, McReynolds, Huckle, and the real Forgel. And then we were going to go on to the villains, which would be Broton slash the Zygons in general, and then the Scarrison. Mm-hmm. Or as someone will later call it, the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, go on, sir. Yeah. So, <laughs> the doctor. It's very interesting that the doctor scoffs it up. Yeah. In something like he doesn't bring any attention to it whatsoever. Mm. It's Sarah's like, what the hell? I this is one of those stories where I don't think we see a lot of character development for the doctor. No. But we get to see some good moments with some of the other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I particularly like there was a moment where uh, Harry was off. Um, I think it was when Harry was captured mm-hmm. and they're talking about how Harry was impersonated and stuff like that and there's this lovely shot I and mean, you see a lot in pictures and snapshots and stuff of this time where you have Sarah sat in the chair talking to the brigadier and the doctor sort of just appearing behind her and almost like yeah. perching himself yeah. resting his head on top of hers and stuff Yeah. Um, I think they had some really nice moments together one thing I liked was as they're crossing the moors at the start, like Sarah Jane's wearing the fedora, but Harry's wearing the scarf. I like yeah. that. I like yeah. that. Well, if Sarah Jane tries to wear the scarf, the poor woman will fall over. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that we do get to see, which you know is something that we haven't seen too much of with the other doctors, is the doctor's mental capabilities. So he calls the mental trick mm-hmm. that he does with Sarah to get her to sort of stop breathing. Um, but not die, he calls it a spell, which I think is an interesting way of putting it. It's, it's making it very mystic. Yeah. But this is not something we have seen in a long time. It's the Doctor's like mental powers. Um, and it's something we will see again, particularly with this Doctor. There's just one story in particular coming to mind. Um, so I thought that was really good. I, I loved it the way he plays off Sarah in the story. And at the mm. end... When she's kind of hinting that maybe she won't go with him. And just the, the utter pout on yeah. his face. That's actually, know? that's um, uh, it's a, a Harpo Marx face. Yeah. Because like, uh, like, Tom is a fan of the Marx Brothers and it does mm. a lot of Marx Brothers-esque stuff we'll see over the time. But that face is the type of things that Harpo would pull up when he's like kind of doing the clown. Mm. Mm. So for me, it's sort of like, it's an, it's an, interesting story for him i don't think there's anything new really there's some elements that we haven't seen tom's doctor do yet like i said mm. the the mental trickery and stuff like that mm. yeah. um overall good um nothing negative mm-hmm. that i can think of how about you um so i completely agree with philip in the sense of like you can tell that tom is just really settled into the role Hmm. And it actually feels like you you swear that he this story is like two or three years into his run as opposed to just story yeah. number six. It just hmm. feels so. And again, like I suppose, much like uh, Doc Pat and Doc John, it doesn't take long for the, for him to establish his keeping keeping the core of the character, but establishing his own identity. Yeah. We're like we're not waiting to kind of go. Oh, finally, he's the doctor, you know, because mm. uh, like we saw that last season. Yeah, but it's like this story. I think just really cements it. Mm. Um, one thing that I I think I did like was it really speaks to the doctor's trust in his companions that he's willing to sacrifice himself to give them a chance to succeed. Like he had no yeah. way. Like he like he 
when he tried uh, using himself as a conduit for like to disrupt the signal, he was like, mm. well, half energy shouldn't be too bad, and it's more than he can expect. Yeah. And he seems to be very pleasantly surprised that he survived. Um, <laughs> but see, like that's it. Like it's a case of he knows who's on the outside. He knows that if he goes down, they can. So like, there's no real kind of like arrogance to say like that. I have to save the day. It's like they can do it. Yeah, and like even when Sarah Jane kind of pushes back, being like, oh, I always get left behind. Don't you try to make it. He's like, no, I need you. Research is your thing. Yeah. I need you to do your thing, please. <laughs> there was one moment there I liked, and I think it kind of goes into my comments about Sarah Jane, is I think what we might do, like this actually can't, it's easier to talk about Sarah Jane and then yep. go revert back to this comment. Okay, no worries. Yeah. So, so we jump on to Sarah Jane's so? Yeah, and I might as well keep talking. You might as so. well keep going, yeah. Um, so one thing that I would have been really, really curious to see hmm. if this story had Joe in it instead of Sarah Jane. Hmm. Because there's an awful lot with, with McRandall's second sight and the nature of the Loch Ness Monster and hmm. there's a lot of superstition to it. Yeah. And as we've seen with Joe, no matter what Joe sees, she still has that element that there maybe there's more beyond what science can explain mm. and i and like i think sarah jane is like you you can tell that she's a real journalist and yeah. you can also tell like that she's a lot more factual because again like she was saying whatever's haunting the moors like or whatever spirit is haunting the moors it's not capable of destroying an oil rig so yeah. she knows that there's a force or an end like you know some something that science can explain or rationale and i think with that she's a slight bit condescending to MacRonald, yeah, I think I think Sarah's problem is that like, I think had you had Joe there talking to MacRonald, she may have gotten way more information out of him. Yeah, and I think she would like that's the thing. He probably would have been because he does a line there, uh, which is like, oh, when they're talking about the stag head, yeah, and MacRonald is very proud of it, and she says, oh, the the, the you know the uh, the Duke of Forgham, he's a strange kind of man, isn't he? At which point McRonald gets kind of gets defensive and like you know, he is my hereditary clan chief. Yeah, I think I think the thing with Sarah is that she is a great journalist. Mm -hmm. She knows all the right questions to ask. And there are like after that she does identify that she made a bun made a blunder. Mm -hmm. And even when he's talking about second sight, you know, he gets a bit agitated with her at one point and she's like, okay, well explain it to me. Yeah. Do you know? And and she does give him the time to explain, mm -hmm. but then she does end it with well, whatever spirit was haunting the moors, they can't destroy an oil I think Sarah's problem is she can't really read the room. No. I see, my, my the point I was going to make about the doctor is that when she comes back from doing her round, she says, oh, we don't need to worry about security. The landlord has second sight. At which point, the bagpipes stop playing. Mm. And the doctor kind of very solemnly says, do you know, he was playing uh, Flowers of the Forest. It's yep. a lament for the dead. And he kind of says it in like a slightly scolding manner. Yeah, I mean, again, it's the sort of case of, like, I, I sort of take it as a Sarah read the room. Yeah, that, that, that's what I mean, like, as an assortment. You know, like, like, read the room. Also, he was playing a lament for the dead. Mm -hmm. So clearly his second sight is working. Yeah. Do you know? Because they don't know yet mm -hmm. that um, the, the that second, guy died. The second ring yeah. had, had gone down, like. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, like, and that's why like, I just think, I think... No, I'm not like I think Joe would have been really, really good in this story. I think this is like the perfect Joe story. And like no, Sarah Jane is is good in this story. Mm. But I think like that there is a bit of the 
I think those are the main negatives I have to speak about her in this capacity. Um, but like her journalistic traits really do kind of help drive the story mm. beat as well. Because if you think about it, um, she obviously goes investigates the ship. She gets Harry out, brings yep. him back, and as well when when uh, they go back to the castle. She's the one that searches the desk for any information, and she's the one that says, "Well, he's the head of the Scottish Energy Commission, so yeah. if Broton is impersonating him, he has full access to this thing." Yeah. So, like, I think this is really a strong Sarah journalism story. I think it would have been an interesting Joe story. Um, mm. but I think there may have been other things that Joe wouldn't have been as good at. So oh, I think no, it would have been uh, a, a, yeah. a trade-off between them. Yeah. Um, I love how Sarah Jane just order unit troops around. Yeah, it's like it's she's got like special dispensation or something. I was like, like come that. on, we have to stop Harry, and none of them ask her why. Mm. Yeah, they just go running after her, and then she says to split up, and they're like, okay, yeah, and they just <laughs> off they go. Um, I'm going to talk for a second about the scene, and do you know what scene I'm talking about? I I was like I was saving this for Harry, but I suppose like it's because it, well, it's be, not Harry. It's not so, Harry, it's Ian Martyr. That's the thing. It's, it's Ian, Ian Martyr, Martyr yeah. right? This story, and Paddy and I have mentioned it before, has what I think, like, it's definitely my favourite scene in all of Doctor Who. I think it's probably one of yours, if not your favourite scene mm. as well. When Zygon Harry hides in the barn, it is so creepy to watch. Yeah. But then when he comes at her with the pitchfork... And she's trying to dodge and escape. One of the things I like about this lady, Miss Sarah Jane, is she's a very good reactor. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the sheer sort of terror and also what the fuck. Can you imagine if I suddenly came at you with a pitchfork? No talking, no nothing. Mm. I'm not trying to scare you. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to get you to leave. I'm trying to kill you. Yeah. And, you know, it. she reacts to it so well. It's amazing. And when she when she meets him later, she's like, I don't know if you are who you say you are. Yeah. You know? Like, that scene is done so well because that scene is shot on film. Yeah. And it, it's very, it's, it's like, not quite, it's like early 80s Hammer Horror Pinewood Studio, like, just that side mm. of things because like he's in the like when he's in the hayloft and he's just like watching her like yeah. the head is down but the eyes are kind of up in that mm. sense so like and you know the mouth is kind of agape and it's just like that stalking nature mm. like the camera work like uh, Dougie's like direction and the camera work oh, it, it's amazing like I've seen the scene I don't know how many times but it still raises the hairs on my mm. uh, neck and arms um because it's just done so well and it's acted so well because Ian Marker in that sequence, there's no emotion. It's just completely like an automaton, essentially, yeah. you know. Um, so it's just a, it's just a great sequence. And it's a, obviously it's a it, it takes two to tango. Like so Liz's reactions to him approaching her yeah. with the pitchfork and her dodging and stuff like that. And like just the sequence is brilliant and generally how it finishes when she looks down the camera zooms in on the Zygon impaled on the, the machine it, it's just a fantastic thing overall it's awesome yeah no it, it's brilliant it's brilliant I think for me like again like the rest of Sarah Jane stuff there's nothing 
new here mm. we haven't seen before other than that reaction that's more of a reaction not really yeah. a character piece um but overall i think she did really well except she just needs to learn to read the room yeah i think this kind of maybe slightly this is slightly reminiscent of her in the time warrior because, a bit, yeah 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 so but yeah uh who knows i think though going forward she probably will read the room yeah yeah and now we have harry harry so real harry mm-hmm. because we can talk about zygon harry and the scene again later if you want to but <laughs> real harry mm-hmm. we almost should have just called it ian martyrs a section but whatever yeah. um this is for like it's his last story mm-hmm. but it's a story that really shows just how well he has adapted to this life mm-hmm. again there's no bumbling harry there's no harry being clumsy or klutzy or whatever um he has totally adapted like when he's captured on the ship he just dives at the console he doesn't have a fucking clue what Mm. any of it will do but he's just full-on into it also when they go to the quarry Mm -hmm. he's in his full navy uniform Mm -hmm. which i don't think we've seen him in this entire time not since not since robot was he in the full? Maybe he was. He was when, do you remember when they go to the um, the site of the second burglary? Did he have his hat? I don't yeah, he, no, he had his oh, hat. Yeah. Okay, um, but he's in full. So he has something white in one hand, and he has some sort of bandolier over his arm. Do you know what that was? Well, I'm going to assume because he is an officer, he probably has a sidearm. No, but it was like a big. Bulky squares oh, on like a bandolier. The other was, thing. I'd say it was probably some sort of explosive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we can see him in his full militariness. Mm. Like, he doesn't get to do a whole lot by himself. No. Um, because he gets taken out. But I also love how, like, he. Is driving along, he sees a random guy walking. Like his rush to help your man. That actually, that whole fabulous. that whole sequence as well, which mm. uh, with the warden like watching them and like getting the sniper rifle or like the the rifle and staring down. That sequence is done so good as well because the music is great. It really builds up as the guy trying to get something out. Then there's the first shot, and he gets up and he looks around, and his Ian's timing is impeccable because he goes mm. down, and you actually do think that he's been at least critically wounded. Yeah. Um, but the whole suspense of that shot is just, oh, Dougie. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. And, and Ian plays it so well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'll talk about this in my overall, but this is Ian's strongest acting performance. I was actually just going to say... By like, and large. I was going to say, like, if it's not his strongest, it's definitely in the top two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else you wanted to add on... Um, one thing is that like, no, I don't know whether it's his natural curiosity but mm-hmm. I like to believe that his last few adventures with the doctor has kind of turned him into a small bit of an amateur sleuth because when he's looking at the medical reports he's like there's a fair bit of crash injuries here and like Huckle says well that's from the rigs you know falling mm-hmm. down on people and he's like I, I still want to go take a look at it I wouldn't necessarily call that him sleuthing that's his doctor that's yeah. his medical yeah that's what i mean but it's like i just think maybe like the adventures with the doctor like maybe there's something more here yeah i mean if you compare him reviewing the medical report yeah. and 
not just accepting it on face value and wanting to look into it himself. Yeah. Versus in Robot. Yeah. Where it was, I am the doctor, you yeah. know, back to the sick bay. You know, it was a very like that, it's a yeah. different focus. That's that, that yeah, that's what that's what I mean. In the sense like not amateur sleuth, but it's a bit more like maybe a secondary look won't be a waste mm. of time. Yeah. yeah. Um but yeah, like this is just a fantastic performance by by Ian altogether, like. Mm. Like it kinda of sucks that this is his last sort of main performance. We'll see him again mm. in a couple of weeks, but this is his last main performance, which sucks. Yeah. Uh so now we have the Brigadier. The Brig in a Kilt yep. is one of the most amazing things ever. Mm-hmm. And I'm Fine. gutted he didn't wear it for the entire story. Cracking pair of knees on him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why? Like, he was wearing it at the start. Yeah. And he was wearing why it didn't he end. wear it for the entire story? Mm-hmm. It really suited him. Um, I think the Brig here does a very good job of doing his job. Mm. You can see him, you know, being as respectful as he can to the locals in the form of McRonald. Mm-hmm. You can see the way that he works with Huckle. Mm-hmm. is very professional. But also, the way he deals with, who we later find out is imposter Forgill, but mm-hmm. the way he deals with Forgill, where he's like, look, I understand this is hard to believe. Yeah. But like he backs the Doctor 110%. And actually, I think it's kind of a bittersweet thing that, that th- his last appearance is probably the best showcase of his acceptance of the strange things mm. that they have to deal with. Because there's no, are you sure, Doctor? Or like, you know, surely there's some other explanation yeah. to this. It's like, no, the signal's coming from Loch Ness. There's probably a big monster out there. Fair enough. It's probably the Loch Ness monster. The only thing that he doesn't accept? Yeah. He oh, would the, never he, sleep on duty. Yeah, that he would never sleep <laughs> That's on brilliant. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, like... I, this is a really this is a good sh- uh, story of it. it just shows the growth of the brigadier over the last mm. number of years because as I said there's the complete acceptance of like he's gone full Mulder you know mm. yeah. um, also his interaction with the doctor where the doctor assumes that you're here to you know look after corporate interests and he's like well no I just don't want any more men to die yeah I I like that because again older brigadier pri- like. Maybe not primary, but he would have been like going to go. We're here to serve, you know, to look after. He you would. He would have. He would have worked more based on the pressure he was getting from the, go, the on the party line. Party as, line, yeah. as opposed to like we're here to stop more men dying. Um, mm. So I like that. Um, one thing as well that I thought was kind of interesting. Now mm. is that when when he goes to rescue the doctor at the very end uh, from mm. Broton. Himself and the soldier beside him, they don't open fire on Broton immediately. It's only after Broton mm. kills another soldier trying to sneak up on him. That's when the mm. brigadier shoots. Yeah. And I was like, again, this is huge development because no longer are we seeing like the like the brig that would shoot first, you know. Mm. Um, so it's kind it's kind of strange that like you know that you know Nick says Nick felt yeah. that the brig was fading into the background, but here we're just after seeing like this really like a nice micro of the entire character development of this character yeah um but i mean i think it's a great episode mm-hmm. or great story for the brigadier i think when you compare it to some of the stories he had during the third doctor's run which mm-hmm. you know is meant to be the height of unit and a lot of them like yeah we love him because we love nick and we love mm-hmm. the brig as a character but yeah and a lot of them he was a bit of a dick 
Yeah. Do you know? And he wasn't very supportive. And, you know, he did sort of like, oh, come on, doctor, or whatever. Whereas here, he's like, what do you need? Cool. Like Get we, done. Whatever. Like, like two, of, two of our favorite early unit stories are Silurians and Inferno. And he is a dick in them. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I do like that, you know, I like, said, so this is going to be our last Nicholas story for a very long time. And, mm. you know, we don't treat the brigadier as a companion in terms of doing ramblings. Mm-hmm. We also don't treat Benton as a companion in terms of doing ramblings. And maybe we should, but then we'd kind of have to do ramblings for way more people. Yeah. Um, I do think, though, when we eventually get to Nicholas's last story, mm-hmm. which would be... The five doctors, I think. No, because he's in Battlefield. Yes, sorry, you're right. Pal. But then it depends on if we're going to do the Sarah Jane Adventures as well. Mm-hmm. This isn't that. Um, I do think it would be good to give the Brigadier a rambling, but he's not He's not there yet. No. He, he still has there, some there, great stuff there, to come. There's, yeah, there's still, some, uh, there's still some great break moments. Yeah. Where, Battlefield where, is great. <laughs> where is Wish? Do you have any, any other thing to say about the rig? No, I'm going to miss him. Yep, me too. Whereas with this next, you know, fucking, I, I, I can never just get over how much I love Benton. I really can't. He is. Benton is really one of those characters that I don't think I've ever met someone who doesn't like him. Yeah. Like I, I've seen online people who maybe don't like the Brigadier mm-hmm. because he's so, particularly for a lot of John's run, he was very argumentative with John. Yeah. Even though he'd been very cordial with Patrick and you know, for the two stories he had with Tom, they actually, I thought they got along very well. Hmm. Um, I have never heard anyone dislike Benton. It is physically impossible. The boy is a puppy. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Benton gets along well with the landlord because, of course he does. Mm. Of course he does. That, that He's Benton. Why would he not get along well with the landlord? Yeah. Um, again, this isn't really a story where Benton does a whole lot. It's not, but, like, it's just... But everything he does is typical Benton. It's typical Benton. <laughs> but I really appreciate like how why like he is like he's a higher rank now, like yeah. he's like your warrant officer class one, um, whatever it is. But he's still just one of the lads. Like he still has that easygoing nature with the guys. Like when he like when he first rocks up in the jeep and he's like, "Oh, old Angus is at the bagpipes again," and they're like, "Yeah, he is." It's <laughs> like he. One thing I always tell people, okay, when they in in work, mm. when they're like you know come they they want to like they do shadowing sessions with me to kind of see what my job is like and stuff like that because they might mm. be interested. One piece of advice I always give them is that when you move up, never forget where you've come from and never forget who you came up with, because yeah. you don't like you still might have to be like um, a higher level than some of your work colleagues. Don't let the position go to your head because that will yeah. ruin stuff. And Benton is a prime example of you know the, that mantra. Yeah. Um, because like he's just oh he's so wonderful. Um, and you might think I'm just getting a small bit choked up now. I recently watched a video from a fan convention a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah. And it was just it was John Levine in an autograph session, and he was like just saying hi, John Levine. Um, and he has such love and passion for the character, yeah, for the show, for the fans, and the genre in general. And he was just saying, like, love, like, love each other, like, be good to each other. And just like, because I think it was, 
I think why what it had been was that someone might have been self-conscious about their cosplay. Mm. And he was like, dress up, you know, live, breathe, live it, breathe it, whatever it is. And it's like, just to have like someone like that as a character and an ambassador for the show as well is just. Yeah. Wonderful. Like I, I met John before. Um, mm. He was absolutely lovely. He has the biggest smile ever. Mm. And he's constantly smiling. Yeah. Is the thing. Even when he's signing autographs, like on his own. Um, because at events often you know people will order autographs online, so he'd be signing away mm. a stack of them to, to save for later. He's just the smiliest person. But the thing is that like John, he's also like at least like from what I've seen from talking to him and from like he do, he did um some of the Blu-ray stuff mm-hmm. um for Katie's uh, last season. Um, he really loves the show. Mm. Like he watches it. Yeah. You know, he watches the new stuff. He watched all the old stuff. Um, and that's really, really great. Do you know? It's great to see that passion that it wasn't just a job for him. And again, like in talk about like, you know, knowing where you come from. Mm. He remembers where he came from. Yeah. Like he will do like he remembers what Doctor Who was mm-hmm. where I allowed him to go. I think, you know, for Benton as a character. I think he's a character who went through a big change mm. in terms of his development and his responsibility. But I love that like, he's still just that little boy yeah. in many ways. Like, <laughs> if I ever meet the man, I'll be like a fucking blubbering wreck. Like, because like this is how much I love Benton and and by association as well, John Levine. I tracked down randomly an episode of the fucking Beetleborgs that he appeared in. He's not even like the he's like a villain of the week and he doesn't have a huge amount of fucking screen time and he's there like in a fucking old safari suit with a fucking khaki hat. And I was like that's how much I suppose Benton means to me, you know? Yeah. Well in many ways you you and Benton are quite similar. Yes. Oh God! Okay, so, now that we're done gushing yeah, <laughs> over no, Benton and cool. John Levine, yeah. So we have the prominent characters next. Now, as I said, yeah. like they, these characters, they don't really contribute a whole lot to the overall story, no. but they're still a nice little exposition piece to mm. what's going on. Mm. So we have the real Forgo, we have yeah. Huckle, and we have. Um, Angus Mac- Angus McRonald. Hmm. So probably Huckle first because he probably has the least to, to say about. Yeah. Nice guy. Mm-hmm. Good at his job. Concerned about his people. The, this is the thing again like whereby he is under enormous pressure and he even says it. He's under mm. pressure from his bosses because of the money that they're losing. Yeah. But again, like the brigadier, his sole concern is the men on the rigs. Yeah. yeah. Like when he loses contact with the second rig we see, but the third yeah. rig belonged overall, to his company overall, that's, been, yeah. that's been destroyed. Like when he's trying to get them back on, you can tell he knows what's happened. Hmm. And you can tell he's devastated, do you know? And like when fake forgill is like you know oh make sure your men stay off my like you can tell he's like dude we have bigger fucking issues like mm. I've, I've warned them fucking leave it alone like yeah. um he's a really nice guy uh, what i like is the fact that he's not a dick yeah 
It would have been very easy to make him the blustering, all about money, all about profit mm. character that we've seen before. It's not like, you know, like, oh, you soldier boys are meant to hear, be here to, like, protect us or any that kind of shit. Yeah, and also he's American. Yeah. So it would have been very... Very easy to do that. Very easy to, to sort of, you know, write into a stereotype there um, yeah. with that. And I'm really glad that they didn't. Um, nice guy, not a dick. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have McRonald, who, like, I always liked Angus Lenny. Like, anything he's, <laughs> anything he's, he's in, like, he's just, like... Like he's like what? Like he's like four foot nine. He's just wonderful. You know? <laughs> but um, no, in the sense of like, because his interactions with Sarah just kind of really shows, um, it, it really gets across the suspense of the story. First of all, mm. you know, with all the disappearances going back throughout the the decades, um, how the Duke of Forgill, like, because he was like going like you know, yeah, the, the Duke is a changed man. And he's yeah. put that down to the fact that a lot of his people have gone to work for the company. And now, mm. and and he kind of really explains a lot there as to why the actual Forgill would be mm. acting strangely in the sense of, he says that he is the hereditary clan chief. So yeah. that means that a lot of the families in the area would still have that connection to Forgill himself. Mm. So he probably, I'm going to assume that it's not just employees, but it's also members of his extended clan leaving mm. his service to go work somewhere else. So he gives that side of things, which is why, like, it, it you're, you're still kind of going, like, you know, is is Forgill in league with the Zygons, or is he a Zygon, or what's going mm. on? Is he like, it would have been believable for Forgill not to be a Zygon. Absolutely. And, and still be the character that, mm. he, that fake Forgill is, based off what we learned yeah. from... From McDonald. Because like in episode two, hmm. when we see the um, the warden and the nurse in the alcoves, we see a third we see a third figure. Yeah. And we know that he's wearing a suit, but we don't we don't actually see the face or there's no indication as to who it is. So it could hmm. be an other, an as yet unintroduced character. Yeah. Um so I like but going back to McRonald, like he really I've said it before, like, you know, like there are characters that they are the, well, there may be only one of them. They're the one that represents the locale or yeah. the, pe- the people as a whole. So when they die or when they, whenever anything happens to them or involves them, mm. the stakes are raised by virtue of that fact, I think. Yeah. Like, I think McGranald is, A, he's a very well-written information dump. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel... Oh, we need to put these words in, in, and like the information we get from him couldn't come from just anybody. Yeah, it's good information that only makes sense coming from him. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you look at him, like he's a good man. He leads a good life. Do you know he's perfectly like he had no issues with the unit soldiers and what they were doing. No, no issue with any of that. No. We don't. We don't get the sense he has any issue with the oil rigs. He's no issue with them mm. either. And like say come say compared to something like the Green Death, he doesn't come across as a stereotype. No, not really. I mean, he's someone who's clearly very close to his heritage. Yeah, and he like he you know his people have lived in these parts going back generations. Yeah, but it's more a case of taking pride in it rather mm. than being a stereotype of it. Yeah, um, which is great, and yeah. he didn't deserve what he got. 
No, but again, that's the tragedy. Like, that's why I, I particularly love this era because you really do feel like the supporting cast deaths. Yeah. They actually, like, they add to the story. They add yeah. to the suspense, they add to the plot progression, everything like that. So you feel it. It's not just some nameless fucking, you know, guard number three type thing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I didn't like, well, I didn't like his death because he died, but the one thing I didn't like about his death is that, and this kind of goes back to Benton, is how we don't really get to sit with it. Yeah. Because Benton is amazingly like, lads, grab your rifles, we're going. Mm-hmm. Like, Benton's all business, mm-hmm. which is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. But it meant that we didn't really get to, you know, no one really got to mourn him. Yeah. Do you know? Which I think is sad, but it's also so true to the situation that they're in. Mm. There wasn't time for that. Yeah. There'll be, t- there'll be time for this later type thing. Yeah. I thought McGrath was a great character. I thought he was a great comp- contribution to the story. Mm. And I think that that type of character where the focus he kind of reminded me in some ways of um oh what's her face from the demons oh mrs hawthorne yeah hmm. kind of yeah during the sense of like not a stereotype hmm. good contribution to the story good tra- contribution to plot in terms of exposition hmm. without just being an info dump and I suppose as well, like, um, I, I mentioned the Green Dead and a bit of Starry, but mm-hmm. Bert, the minor that go, that's with yep. Joe that dies, like, you feel his death, definitely. Yep. So, like, kind of like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. A nice pairing of the, the two types, I think. Mm. And then we have actual Forgill. Real Forgill is a really nice, pleasant, helpful chap. He's really nice. He he is. Although, like, I will say, like, at the you know, at the end when mm. like you know the brig is talking about the cover story, he is mm. reminiscent of what the Forgill we first see. Well, yeah, but that's also, but you could tell like he's saying it with a sort of. It's yeah. being said like it's the Sar- same words, yeah, but it's being said with a different tone. It's the same sarcasm type thing, yeah. Yeah, Joe's like, oh, so official secrets and all that jazz. But then he's like, you know, do you know? I think they did see the monster. <laughs> but the sun was like, he's just yeah, playing with yeah, it yeah. Do you know, I actually think that um, I like Forgill the character mm-hmm. but I also think that John Wood is probably one of my favourite guest actors he is so good yeah Um, as both evil Forgill and nice Forgill and Broton as well and Broton as well <laughs> Um, but I think he's really great I love his little joke with the brick at the end yeah, it's, oh god. Because particularly when you when we now have the trivia point about how John kind of wanted him to be a bit more Eaton. Yeah. And a bit less Highlands. Yeah. Do you know? Um and so the fact that he's like, you know, did they have return tickets? Yeah. So you should have taken them back and gotten a refund. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you call yourself a so Scotsman. Scotsman. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of like that, particularly because when we realised that um Dougie kind of wanted to make or that John himself wanted to make him a bit more Eaton. Hmm. I like that, do you know, because it also, like, you kind of get the sense that had he not been replaced, Mm. had the entrance to the Zygon ship been somewhere else, and he that he actually would have been a really helpful character to the story. Yeah. And he would have got along really well with the break. It would have been nice to see the two of them play off each other. Yeah. 
no no de- definitely because like i just i'm just laughing like, i think like was it's the uh, scotland like or the scots and the irish they have a very similar sense of humor i think it's just that connection <laughs> that but yeah no like i actually like when all when the doctor rescues forgill and the warden and the nurse mm. there's no like you know who are you unhand me i'm a, i'm the duke of forgill that kind yeah. of shit it's like what's going on like like okay fair enough we'll follow you like there's no him trying to establish his dominance or, dominance or superior yeah. and even with like the the warden as well the gilly the caber whatever you want to call him it's like he's so, like uh, so many different words yeah so thing. okay so the um he's a game warden for yeah. the duke but like uh he calls him his gilly which mm. i'm going to assume is probably the scots gaelic term for war game warden yeah, he's also referred to as Caber. Caber, because... Because a, of a story that he tells him. Yeah, because he's a Highlands Games champion. So clearly mm. that means he's like the, the Caber tosser or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, or maybe one of the other games. But, um, like, he, like when the uh, the Zygon impersonates the Warden, he's just mm. very stern, like that typical stern, angry Scott. Mm. But then, like, inside, he goes, like, the doctor says, like, you're bet break that he goes is this broken enough for you I think <laughs> um, yeah like it's it, it, this whole story kind of reminded me of what, the faceless ones and it's like this is what I wanted the faceless ones to be type thing yeah um, yeah very much so yeah but yeah no actual Forgill is a nice character mm. I would have liked to have seen more of real Forgill yeah <laughs> but evil Forgill evil Forgill is dick or Brogill or Borgil. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing I'd say about Broton is that, like, he clearly replaced Forgil a while back. Mm-hmm. Like, he's been doing this for several weeks, if not months, at uh, this point. I would say, when, however far back the drilling started, that's when yeah. the impersonation started. He plays the role really well. Oh, he, he like, that, because, like, that's the thing. It's like, McRannell goes, like, and that's what I was saying, like, McRannell equates his change in behavior mm. to the circumstances of the people leaving his employment so it's like he's not acting completely out of character yeah and that's why it was as well like um you know when forgill is like sort of oh official secrets and all that at the very end mm. you can kind of see that in some of the stuff that forgill says at the start in in the very same vein or yeah brought in the very i'm same vein. trying to think because i may be confused it with a different story the thing that the real people are in yeah the, Pods yeah, or whatever. The alcoves, yeah. The alcoves. I'm trying to remember. Do they mention brain mapping in any of that? Because no. even Zygon Harry is like the doctor sent me. Uh, they didn't mention like, it, but I think they just said their their imprint. Yeah, because like because al- otherwise, the way they're acting, the way they're behaving, is purely from what they observed before they took over. In which case, wow. <laughs> do you know like you know you wouldn't have known like Forgel doesn't like fake Forgel does not read as a body snatchers situation mm-hmm. do you know it reads as a guy being a dickhead oh. in which case well done <laughs> kudos Broton you, you did it well dude <laughs> uh, let's just see there now uh, just body prints that's, that's what they're called yeah. Yeah, so, like, there's no mention of reading someone's mind or obtaining their memories. It's purely a physical mm. thing. Um, and for that, like, 
he drives a car. Hmm. You know, he 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 behaves for months like he's the real person. Yeah, pays his bills, goes hunting, donates. Does his job, does correspondence, sends letters. Yeah, this is the thing is like you know, as and also as well as the Duke of Four as impost, impersonating Forgill, he's very charismatic. Even yeah. as a, even as a villain, his his back and forth with the Doctor is brilliant. His first mm-hmm. scene is brilliant. Like yeah, John did a fantastic job, I think, in terms of the even, even when he's with Sarah on her own. Yeah, you know, obviously it's... we find out that Sarah's in danger, but like. Yeah. No, he chats away to her fine, like, mm-hmm. do you know? Absolutely. Um, as the thing about the Zygons that I love is that clearly when they have time to observe, hmm. there is no telling. No, there's not. Do you know, which makes them such an interesting villain. Oh. Because I... they, anybody could be a Zygon. There's no way to tell. Like, we can probably talk about Zygon Harry. Um because Zygon Harry is very different to real Harry. Yeah. But um, Zygon Harry has been observing Harry for what? I mean, how long? Like, okay, Forgold was chatting to him in the car. Mm-hmm. And then, what, maybe one or two scenes that they may have seen him in the pub? Yeah. And that's it. Mm. So he didn't really have a lot to go from. But also in impersonating a, Harry. Yeah, but also as well, I think about the situation in which, you know, imposter Harry comes into mm-hmm. thing. He's trying to reclaim the device. Yeah. So anyone that tries to stop him and like as well, like you know, Sarah kind of goes out, but the doc- like, why wouldn't the doctor come back himself or anything mm-hmm. like that? So it's do, doing the best out of a bad situation, I would say there. Yeah. But the Zygons are they're 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 incredible. Like their look, like their whole aesthetic. Is fantastic. Mm. I love the fact that the interior of their ship and their technology is very much like a coral reef. Mm. Um, and obviously, there's a, a big octopus or squid or cephalopod uh, kind of influence here because of their overall look and mm. as well uh, their ability, you know, the, the impersonating of someone else. Mm. Like octopuses and stuff like they camouflage themselves or they alter yeah. their shape or anything like that to lure prey uh, to lure in uh prey. Mm. So it's 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 of all the animals to pick like for an influence for a fucking alien, like that thing those creep they creep the shit out of me. So yeah. the Zygons Yeah. No. Yeah I think like overall I love the concept of the Zygons. Mm-hmm. Um again they're also one of my favourite villains from the classic series. Mm-hmm. And they had one story. Um, and I think the differences between, again, between them and something like a Cyberman or a Dalek or whatever is because of the fact that they're impersonators, mm-hmm. you get that human connection. Like the scene with Harry in the Hayloft mm-hmm. is the scariest scene in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. And it is one of my favorite scenes in Doctor Who ever. Um, it's so fantastic because you get that human interaction mm-hmm. that I love. I always like the human or the humanoid villain. I don't like too much hidden behind prosthetics. I don't like, you know, this hive mind mentality that Daleks and, and the Cybermen have. Yeah. So you get to explore that while still having the alienness and all that kind of stuff as well. I think that's why we kind of gravitate towards like the Santarans or the Ice Warriors as well, mm. like because they're. Like Daleks and Cybermen are always going to be iconic. They they yeah. are. 
and like every so often like we'll see changes to their story structure or how they interact with stuff and like like i think daleks more so than cybermen are capable of that Mm. i think because daleks brought an awful lot of new stuff to the table every time they appeared up until a certain point in time Mm. whereas cybermen it's very samey i think um but with the likes of like the zygons yeah like there's so many stories you can have and just have imposters be the thing and then obviously we had our discussion about ice warriors and Santarans being multifaceted and multi-capable and whatever they can bring to the table so yeah it's it's a shame that these classic villains Mm. are they're kind of superseded by the likes of the Daleks and the Cybermen and they also to an extent the master I mean like for fuck's sake for like we said like for like the first however many appearances of the master it was the same dick dastardly bullshit come up with a plan trust another alien race get fucked over be somewhat surprised yeah i mean i mean that's the other thing with the zygons is that like, the zygons were like they only started lashing out mm. when the drilling started like, the zygons were on earth for hundreds of years yeah and like that that's the scary thing mm-hmm. you know um, I mean, you could very easily do a story about the Loch Ness monster. That's easy. Anyone could do a story about the Loch Ness monster. The X Files is a story about the Loch Ness monster. It's a fantastic episode. It's brilliant. It's one of my favorite X Files. Um, but it kills off quickly. But um, to do this type of story about the Loch Ness monster, mm. where the monster is almost secondary, mm. but still totally believable to the myth yeah at the same time i think it's really good yeah this isn't like the at the end you don't like, you know, don't look behind the curtain it's like no no we're, we're aware that there's someone behind the curtain the whole time yeah yeah very much i suppose that brings us to the, to the Loch Ness monster itself nessie or the scarison <laughs> didn't actually look that bad i actually was very impressed with the effects I like, I like, there was one point um, i think it was the start of the chase with tom mm-hmm. where you can kind of see his little legs yeah. Like move it. <laughs> it yeah. was very cute. They're the, the just kind of like flapping its way across the land. But I, I think much like uh, it kind of like its head movements and um, kind of reminded me of the drash eggs a small bit. Yeah. It, it very much, I think, builds on the drash eggs. Yeah. More so than the dinosaurs. Mm, definitely. Um, it, it's much more drash egg like in that respect. I like his eyes. I like how it blinks. Yeah. The eyes move. Mm. And like it blinks. It has eyelids. Which are those little things I find really cool, which I think some of the dinosaurs had. Yeah, I think like. But the, I think this is better. The T Rex, I think, was the big one that had it. Yeah. Uh, oh, but th- no, like we talked about how the dinosaur effects in Invasion of Dinosaurs weren't that bad. The Scarison mm. is better than those, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it was a mm. big learning from mm. that story. I think taking what they learned about the effects from dinosaurs mm-hmm. with a design more similar to the Drashigs, mm-hmm. I think worked really well. And like, this is the thing is like, I also, I also feel kind of sorry for the Scarison mm. because we're told that the Zygons like, sustain themselves off its milk. Yeah. So it's essentially a cow to them, mm-hmm. but, but then they, they, they like cybernetically augment it to use it as yeah. a weapon. So like it essentially just becomes like you know the big those big Chitari space we- whales from the Avengers, mm. it becomes little more than that. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing about this garden that I find interesting as well is that don't they say that, like, the receiver that they use is, like, sends out a mating call or that's something. What, that's what the doctor theorizes. Like, they're tricking it into attacking yeah. things, which is just sad. But I kind of like the idea that at the end, like, Sarah's like, where's it going? He's like, back to the lock, the only home. Back to the knows. only home it's ever known. Yeah. Joe, you know? and you're kind of like, that's quite a nice ending. Like, it's down as a villain, but it's not really. No, it's more of a like it's more of a villain more by of a prominent character, really. Yeah, more of a villain by circumstance. Yeah, exactly. More of a villain by circumstance. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I like the fact that like it didn't get killed off. I like the fact that like you know it doesn't get shot at because we're told there's no point. I like the fact that they do that straight up because in many ways it's kind of innocent of mm. any wrongdoing. It's reacting to I hear a noise that I'm meant to go towards, and that's it. And then it's trying to find the source of the noise. It's like, well, you're a little human thing. You're not the fucking source of the noise. It's actually reminding me of the a, a French movie, I love Brotherhood of the Wolf, which mm. is um, uh, it's a kind of a period action movie. But it's like what the 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 the, the, the wolf of um, Javadun in, Fra- in France. It's like, what if it was actually this fucking creature that was commanded by someone? So again, mm. kind of reminiscent to that. But um, uh, yeah, no, I actually look just. The Scarrison is another element as to why this story is so good. So we have gushed and gushed over people leaving and people appearing and not going to see them again for a very, very long time. <laughs> uh, so now it comes to the final section of the podcast, the overall so her, that's where myself and Trish give our score out of five each. So I think... You, you went first the last time. Did I? I did. You did, yes. So Yeah, because you, you asked me if the season finale ended strong, and I was like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> nope. This is declining. Mm. Um, okay, so thoughts on Terror of the Saigons. Yes. I will say that, you know, this isn't the biggest character development story we've ever had no which usually for me is the stories that rank really highly are the ones that are very character mm-hmm. developing yeah i will say though this story is suspense action fear solid characters solid villains a somewhat sympathetic weapon mm-hmm. i suppose and really the production value on this story is phenomenal Mm. it is so well done right from the beginning you're on edge do you know it's like something you'd see in a hitchcock film Mm -hmm. or a stephen king adaptation or something like that you're very much on edge from the off and like i we've gushed about it several times but like the scene with Harry and with Zygon Harry and the pitchfork is so good. It's so well done. Yeah, like with Seven Trish often joked like that in the lead up to this is like okay, so okay, because of the scene, the story starts at a five. Let's see what yeah. brings it down. And to be honest, what brings it down? Nothing. I like I, I honestly <laughs> there's nothing wrong with this story. It's fantastic. So if it started at a five because of Zygon Harry and I can't think of anything to dock at marks for, 
that means season 13 is starting with a five and what makes me bitter about it is had this been the end of season 12 it, we would have had a really song strong we would have had a really solid ending you know yeah. but i like the fact that I mean, this is such a great opener to season 13 do you know like if you'd you know you'd watched season 12 and you went away and you're coming back being like oh yeah oh yeah tom baker's the doctor now or what's he like you're like this is brilliant we 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 might be I we might be in a similar scenario this season as we were last season because mm. I think you're on record on the podcast as saying the next story is probably your favorite classic, and I'm mm. on record as saying the story after that is probably <laughs> my favorite classic. So yeah, like it's now we're gonna to have to see if season thirteen sticks the landing. Yeah, um, no, I mean, as an opener, this is just it's so good. It it. It's so good. Um, I absolutely love it. But like, that was my score and my gushing. Mm -hmm. Your turn. Okay. So just the thing about uh, your lack of character development or no real character development, we've often said that that's not a bad thing. We've always said like, like, it doesn't need to be something there every time. No. When there is character development, we like to see good character development. We don't like to see some backsliding. (laughs) But like, not every story needs to add, you know, something new, you know, Uh, Mm. which is great. But anyway, to this story. I've always loved this story. I always have. Because it blends so many of my favourite things together. Like, there's a very nice horror vibe with good alien elements to it. Part of that is due to the setting. And there's something about coastal Ireland and the UK. Like, I think, like, you know, Scotland, like, especially the Highlands and, like, the Hebrides and, like, like mm. say, like, the west coast of Ireland here. Um and I suppose like parts of remote England, they lend themselves to this rural horror, which is so, when it's done right, it's so good. Mm. You know, like the demons, which is like a fucking great Doctor Who horror story. Yeah. Um. So there's good performances all around. Like uh, John Woodnot just fucking knocks it out of the park. I think he's probably mm-hmm. the best performance. I would in, agree. In, this, in, the, in the actual well, story. Well, that and Zygon Harry. Yeah, it was, yeah. Like Ian Mark, Ian Mark, like for Ian Marker's last continuous appearance, mm. like for his character departure thing, unfortunately, you know, Harry doesn't get a huge chance to shine. You know, he has he has moments, but Ian Marker is fucking brilliant. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ian Marker, Nicholas Courtney, and John Woodnut—they all do a great job here. They all mm. really do. Um, and like it looks a really interesting villain which we sadly won't see for a very long time, which I think we've said is a big waste. Um, It's sad to see the end of the unit era. Yeah. It, it, it is. And there's one thing that kind of annoyed me, is that Benton isn't with them in the final scene. I understand mm. why, because he's the Briggs, like, you know, number two, or he's not number one, so he's probably taking care of a lot of the administrative stuff back in London HQ, mm. which, you know, kind of sucks, but it would have been nice for John Levine to have been there. Mm. Um... But much like yourself, I can't. I personally, I can't find a flaw with the story. It's a five. So, a fantastic opening. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, next we have Planet of Evil. Mm-hmm. Then it's Pyramids of Mars. Pyramids. Then it's the Brain of Morbius. <laughs> Just then. It, then oh, no, sorry, sorry. I it, it, it's then it's the Android Invasion. Then, oh, it's okay. the, then it's the Brain of Morbius, and then it's the Seeds of Doom. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting season. Mm. Um, 
it's, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this season pans out. Yeah. Also, be interesting to see, like, you know, I have gone on record, Planet of Evil is one of my favorite stories to watch. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would say, like, does that mean it'll get a five? I'm going to look at the number of fives I gave last season. Maybe it does. <laughs> but I also haven't watched it in a very long time because mm-hmm. I haven't been watching these stories while we've been doing the podcast and while we yeah. watching the week of. So, mm-hmm. but it'll be interesting to see, like, if Planet still gets a five. It'll be interesting to see if Pyramids does. Because we did pyramids already at the beginning of all this. We, we did, and I have to rewrite the entire script for that because my episode recap is vastly different to how I've done it ever since. <laughs> how did you do it originally? Oh, it was like cut to yeah, like it was like your know, introduction, cut to the TARDIS, cut to this, cut to that, and I'm like, I yeah, no, oh. like, I've taken a much more narrative structure with my with the fucking story recap. So I. We'll need to make a bit of a choice. And maybe we'll ask our listeners here. Should we release the original edit as a sort of special episode? Like as a rambling, not as our official yeah, one, but like fa- as a rambling. Possibly. Should we release the the original um, recording? And I, and I go back to the really shitty sound quality from my end because I was using a headset mic as opposed to a proper mic. I think we were both using headset mics that time. Were we? I don't think, I don't think I've gotten the new one yet. Oh. Um, I think my headset quality mic was still better than yours, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So let us know, let us know Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Let us know what you think. Should we release the original cut? At the moment, I think the only people outside of you and me that have even heard that was we sent it to Norman Norm from, from Mission, Mission Log, Log. Um, to get his thoughts on it. So who have been I think, I think Norm's the only person who's actually heard it. Norman yeah. John, maybe. Absolutely, and like they've been like they've been really helpful and they've been really supportive and uh, yeah. of the podcast. So thanks again, guys, and again thanks yeah. to our regulars. I was actually talking to Shane recently yeah. enough, and his ranking at the moment for the doctors is one, two, three. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, I love that one. Is yeah, <laughs> one. I love it. We're converting because like Shane hasn't actually watched any of these. So, so th- this is the thing: is that Shane has never watched Doctor Who. But he um, uh, he got into it because they started listening to the podcast, mm. and you know he's like he's been continuing to listen to it, so it's been great. So thank you very much, Shane. Thank you, Jane. I do still have my little first Doctor figurine. He's up with my other yeah, Eagle Moss f- figurines. He, he sits up with him. I have my fourth Doctor one. <laughs> and again, I suppose we can't also go without mentioning the our 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 podcast brothers, Dan and Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers from different mothers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I actually found out quite recently, um, because speaking of our brothers from different mothers, um, Paul from Half Measures grew up not very far from Wookiee Hall. Yeah, and he to- uh, he told me about it. Yeah, uh, which which is crazy. Um, but we've sort of rambled enough for the end of this. Yes, we have. So, Paddy, why don't you tell them what's coming up later this week? Well, from one rambling to another, <laughs> we'll be doing a rambling for Harry. Uh, so much like uh, our rambling for Liz Shaw, because mm. he only has six stories, we're just going to do a straight six to one ranking. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, strengths, weaknesses, the whole Norman Shebang. Mm. He's not going to get off that lightly. No. Uh, and then after that, uh, we're going to uh, have the only story that I think that's going to get like a 10 out of 5 by Trish <laughs> <laughs> is Pyramids of, sorry no it's not Pyramids it's, <laughs> Plan- <laughs> it's Planet of Evil I was going to say Pyramids of Evil 
Planet of Mars. Anyway, yes. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs>